Psalm 74 is where we're going to start tonight. We're in the midst of a bunch of psalms that go under the ownership of Asaph, as it says there, a contemplation of Asaph. As we read it, we're going to see that there's really only one place to put this psalm in the history of Israel, and that's right at the destruction and the conquering of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so some people have a problem with that title being a contemplation of Asaph, because Asaph was a worship leader at the time of David. The Babylonian captivity isn't going to be for another, you know, many, many centuries. Some people say, well, then it's, you know, see, the Bible's not true. You, you've got a contradiction there. Well, see, I don't have a problem with this, and I'll give you a couple of explanations. One, it could be that Asaph is just a family name, and they were well-known to be worship leaders, and it could be just the family of Asaph. That's a possible explanation. But also, you know, there's other places in the Scriptures where the Lord has foretold many things that the nation of Israel would have to face through prophets. And Asaph is plainly called a seer elsewhere in Scripture. It could be that despite the Spirit, he is given a vision of something that's going to come in the distant future, and he's seeing it himself. Well, you know, that's perfectly acceptable explanation too. So I don't have a problem with that. But it plainly is about the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It says, O oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Now that's not exactly true. It certainly felt that way. But he hasn't cast them off forever. Uh, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Already you get a feel for um, how bad it is. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You know, I can smell the lamb cooking um, in this. Um, it can feel, you know, a lot like things are unbearable when, when you've, we've got to go through a correction. The, the Psalm 74 is a lot of, about reflecting on God's judgment for sin. It's fair to ask questions, why, when that happens. We'll get an answer here, I think. Says, uh, lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. Um, you kind of can almost feel what's going on there, you know. Of course, if you've been with us through the Bible, you know that the, the temple, as planned by David and built by Solomon, was extremely opulent in the gold and the tapestries and the expense that went into it to display and communicate something about the glory of God and his value. You know, the inside of the, the sanctuary is laden with gold and just the highest craftsmanship of woodwork and weaving. You know, over the, the history of Israel, as they kind of declined, the treasures that were there slowly kind of got parted off. But eventually, the Babylonians come in here, and, you know, they've got quite a picture here. They have set fire to your sanctuary. They break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. 
it says that they damaged everything in the sanctuary. Well, the only way the enemy could get in the sanctuary, the only way these people could get in, is if God had left. That is the case. When you get to Ezekiel, you see that after centuries of disobedience, that the Lord just said, I have to leave. And, of course, that picture of of the Lord leaving out the gate and going and the glory of the kind of glory of God leaving. It's a very melancholy kind of sad picture. And then the only reason the enemies can get in there is because the Lord had left. So they break down all its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. Uh, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? And I think these couple of verses, 9 and 10, are striking and ought to be cause for some personal perspective on our parts. You know, you could easily have taken these verses and turned them around and find that that's what the Lord was saying then to them for a very, very long time. You know, they now are saying, we don't see any signs, we don't hear from you. Well, for a very long time, the children of Israel had stopped listening to the Lord. He had sent prophet after prophet and calling them back and over and over again warning them and warning them and telling them to kind of stop their idolatry, and they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't listen to it. So God finally just kind of says, okay, you want, you want your idols? You don't want to listen to me? I'll stop talking. You can just have all the idols you want. And he sent them off to Babylon, kind of the Disneyland of idols. There were so many idols there that you're choking on them. You know, for them to say, we do not see our signs. No, no, there is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. You know, the Lord might have asked that question, too, of them. How long are you going to not listen? How long are you going to let this go? How long are you going to refuse my corrections? And so now here where they are in a place where the Lord had to judge them, now they're asking that question. Lord, how long? It's kind of ironic that way. But I think that um, we ought to take stock of this in another way too, and that is we ought to highly, highly value the Lord speaking to us even if that word to us is a word of rebuke and correction. Because I don't know about for you, but for the most frightening thing I could imagine would be to get to a time when I just don't hear the Lord. I just don't think I could. I would make through a time like that. And to be in a place where he stopped speaking to me because of my sin is, I think, would be terrifying. More that I could bear. So I think the lesson here is to value the Lord's voice so that he is free to speak to us and we have open hearts to receive anything he has to say. Even if it's um, not the beautiful words of encouragement, things like that, but it's a word of rebuke and correction. And to not turn away from that. We harden our hearts and don't listen. We might might end up in a place where the Lord just says, okay, you're not going to listen. Then I'll just keep my mouth shut for a while. Because, you know, there is something harder than obeying the Lord and being corrected And that's the penalty of sin and the wreckage that sin brings about. That's harder. And it's far better to just take the correction 
thank the Lord and be broken before him and repent and be nourished and strengthened and have those times of refreshing and uh, go forward with him rather than get to a place like this where you just kind of say, I don't know if I can hear from you, Lord, and I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't ever want to be in that place. You know, for all the things the Babylonian captivity did, it cured them of, of idolatry. I mean, they, they sinned in lots of ways in the future past the Babylonian captivity, but the nation of Israel that had been grossly idolatrous up until that time after the Babylonian captivity never fell into that kind of idolatry again. It, it, it cured them of that. You know, notice the questions I think that are being asked here too, verse 1 and then verse 10. Two of the, the most common questions, right, when we get into a place of correction from the Lord, we ask why, and then we ask how long. Those are good questions to ask. <laughs> if we're, I think if we uh, set our hearts to listen finally at that point, and we're honest about our own failures, I think that we will get an answer. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Um, you know, I got a picture of in my mind of him just, you know, hand in his coat there, kind of Napoleon style, and or hands in the pocket, you know, and he's just standing, or God's just standing there doing nothing while the bad people come in and do the thing, and they want him to take his hand out and just flatten them. They, you know, they know God has the power to do that, and he's going to say that. Sometimes that's a hard part of trials, too. When we get to a place where we know that the Lord could fix this, he's got the power to do it, and he doesn't. And so that's what he's going to do here. It's going to reflect on, why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. And here's his statements of faith. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Yes, he has been doing that, and he is still doing that. And then here's these reflections on God's power, and these reflections on God's power are of the sort that say, what is going on right now is so tiny compared to things you've done in the past, this would be nothing for you to correct this thing that's going on right now. Uh, You divided the sea by your strength. And he's talking there about probably the exodus of the parting of the Red Sea, You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. Now, that's kind of a funny word, but in Ezekiel 32, 29, the nation of of Egypt is likened to this sea monster, the sea serpent, using the same language. The idea there is in that parting of the Red Sea, Egypt was broken, and the image of the sea monster is, is that of Egypt. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters, You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. That's a little more harder to explain, Leviathan, because Leviathan is, it's used in various ways in the scriptures. It is kind of a term about Satan, but there's also a place in Job, Job, all of chapter 41, Leviathan has his own chapter in the Bible. (laughs) He's an impressive dude in Job chapter 41. He is the grandest and most powerful most intimidating and fearsome of God's created beings on earth. And the idea in Job is you have no chance against Leviathan, but he, you know, he's just a created thing to me. So you broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. In other words, I'm saying verse 14, I don't know what that means with Leviathan. It can go either way. You broke open the fountain and the flood. This would be... Um, 
a reference, it could be a reference to uh, the flood of Noah's time, opening the fountains of the great deep and bringing forth the flood. Could be also a reference to time in the wilderness after the, the, the crossing of the Red Sea where they needed water in the wilderness and he brought forth water out of a rock. I don't know any, any rocks around my house that have water spouting out of them, enough to feed and water you know, two to three million people, uh, but he did it. And again, it's a demonstration of power that puts the current problem in perspective. To God, it is nothing for him to be able to fix this based on what he has done in the past. You dried up mighty rivers. That might be in reference to crossing the Jordan. The day is yours. The night also is yours. Speaking of, you know, much larger scale demonstrations of God's miraculous power that's just so commonplace, it's, it's easy to just kind of forget about it. The day is yours, the night also. You have prepared the light and the sun. Now, it's, doesn't, it doesn't exactly say that. It says, you have prepared a light giver, the sun. You know, this is the same ta- terminology that goes back to Genesis chapter 1, right? And, you know, if I did this with the Sunday school kids, they would get the right answer. But if I said... What day of the creation week did God create the sun, moon, and the stars? Go ahead and hold up your hands with the fingers. How, on what day did God create? I only see a couple hands. Do we, get, do we need to get the Sunday school material out? It's day four. Day four, yes, day four. Now that's interesting because light was created on day one, right? And so really these are just kind of light holders. Anytime I run into a reference to the sun in the scriptures, I always like to stop and contemplate the sun. The sun is the most significant, I think, demonstration of God's power that is so common. You know, I'm kind of a science guy. I like some of the science, and the sun is fascinating to me. And the science around the sun, uh, as they studied it, is, is just fascinating. And I don't know if you follow some of that, you know, it's the standard thought is this, you know, the sun is billions of years old. No, it's not. It was created on, again, day four. It's created, you know, this way it isn't. It isn't they call it a mainline star. No, it's not. <laughs> it's only six to 10,000 years old. And I only say 10,000 because it's hard to nail that down exactly. You know, I don't know if you follow the science that's around that right now. And, and I should say this, warning science content here. I peruse some of those channels of science and stuff, and the image that you get about science these days is is that they're so confident in the Big Bang. Well, when you look at what they're saying these days, the Big Bang is teetering. The idea of the Big Bang is teetering on, on very unstable footing. Just recently, some cosmologists and mathematicians have put together a study on black holes. I know this is fascinating to you, isn't it? And they have said, basically, from what they have, we've always thought about black holes, you know, those, everything's really small and crushed and the gravity off the charts and light can't even get out. Their latest findings is that black holes can't exist. And you say, well, what's that got to do with anything here? Well, if black holes can't exist, the singularity that a black hole is, is what they attribute the beginning of the universe to in the Big Bang. So if singularities never existed, the Big Bang never happened. And that's the latest findings in cosmology is that they're kind of, everybody's kind of standing around going, okay, now what? 
now that this finding is out there. The Big Bang never happened. And it's kind of like they're going to put their fingers in their ears and we didn't hear that. Let's just go on and pretend that that wasn't said. Because the alternative to that, alternative to the Big Bang, is that someone created it in a moment of time. And the scriptures say that in the last days, people are going to put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes and say, God's not the creator. And they're going to deliberately suppress that. Okay, let's get back to the text. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Again, these demonstrations of God's power in relationship to what is going on here, to fix this is what's going on right now, this is nothing for God, which only makes the trial a little more painful. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove, your turtle dove to the wild beast. Sometimes the Lord uses sinful people to correct us. We need to listen for the voice of the Lord correcting us, even if it comes from someone who's ungodly. That can be hard to take. But, you know, if we get correction from a boss who's ungodly and we need to listen to it, well, maybe the Lord will deal with the boss in another time. But right now, this is between me and the Lord, and we need to hear what is being told to me. Just like right here with the Babylonians, Babylonians are very evil, wicked people, but the Lord used them. And there was um, something to learn in the midst of that, despite these foolish people blaspheming his name. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. And here's the last cry to God to fix the problem, to change the circumstance. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Uh, So Psalm 74. Let's go to 75. To the chief musician set to do not destroy. Again, a psalm of Asaph. Some people try to locate this just before the Assyrians are set to conquer, in their mind, the Assyrians' mind, the city of Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. That could be. It fits. It would pair well then with 76, because 76 is about, is probably after the Assyrians are judged and destroyed at that same time. It says, We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. And again, just his wondrous works, all of creation, declares that the Lord is near and not far. It's a simple thing to look around at the created world and draw the conclusion from a very obvious statement, that very obvious statement in creation, there is a creator. Declare that your name is near. And also the other, the other things that he has done. And he says here, verse 2, that was God speaking firsthand. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its perm- pillars firmly. Selah. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Or the when I choose the appointed time, I will judge uprightly. That's something we just need to hold on to as believers, is that the Lord has 
a schedule for what he's doing with our lives. He's got an appointed time. He's got the right time in mind. I think of the verse in the New Testament where the Lord is talking to his family members, and his family members tell him in John, hey, you should go up to the temple now if you want to be known publicly. You know, you should go up to the temple and the feasts and let yourself be made known. They don't believe him. They're saying that kind of sarcastically. And then Jesus says, he says, your time is always ready, but my time is not now. You know, I don't know how many times I've heard that from the Lord. You're, you're always ready for me to act, but I've got another time in mind. When we don't understand God's timing, well, that's just an opportunity for faith. That's an opportunity to understand that the Lord is doing something we just don't understand right now. He's, he's working for our good. He's working for our best. And if he were to take my recommendations and do things in my time, he wouldn't be able to do the best that he wants to do for me. He'd be limited by my immediate impatience and my immediate desire for comfort and convenience and relief and uh, would leave me probably in a state of you know, emaciated faith. So he makes us walk through times where we have to wait on him. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. If this is the Assyrians at that time, you know, the Assyrians had come down and had really had wiped out everything in the area and were the dominant military force. Uh, nothing could stop them. And they had already conquered the northern tribes. They had already conquered most of Judah. Really, the only thing left was the city of Jerusalem. And now a couple hundred thousand troops are outside the walls in a siege and you know, from all materialistic standpoints, Jerusalem is done. And the Assyrians are so confident in themselves, they're rather boastful about it. Of course, Hezekiah, to his credit, brings those taunts to uh, the Lord. And in one night, those chapters, three, four chapters in, in Isaiah, talks about in one night an angel going down and killing 185,000 troops w- with, with nothing. I mean, it's not even a special angel, right? You know, it's not even an archangel armed with special weaponry. It's just kind of like Angel Dave. And he goes down, and without any special effort on his part, he wipes out the whole Assyrian army. So it's nothing for the Lord. The Lord says, I will choose the right time, and I'm going to do it my way. And the goal is that he would be glorified. And so he's going to do that. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. It's kind of like, you know, things are so bad, everything's about to fall apart. And he's saying, but I have it in hand, if you want to put it that way. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. The imagery, of course, of a horned animal in the wild. I can see you my own mind, I see one of them big mountain goats, the big, you know, rams, curls, and they just, they don't fear anything up there. They got the, they got the hardware, and so, uh, you know, the idea is that the boastful, proud people of the world, they've got all the power and the prominence and, and the momentum, and Lord is warning them about that. Do not speak with a stiff neck. And then this funny verse, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 
the reason why we land Psalm 75 around the time of Hezekiah is from verse 6, it seems like. It says, for exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. Notice it's left out the north because the Assyrians came from the north. And that would make sense that they would reflect this way in a, in a time of leaning on the Lord, looking for him as they would be, as Jerusalem would be from the Assyrians a time of faith and, and understanding that God has us in hand, they're saying, uh, you know, these guys came from the north, so where else could we possibly go for help on the earth? Well, east, west, south. And they're saying, no, there's no relief for this problem in any direction other than the Lord. It's a, it's a nice statement of faith, saying God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Um, but in the midst of that verse 2, in verse number six, there's also, I think, a principle for ministry in there. Exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. A lot of ministries want to be seen as impactful and want to garner attention on a larger scale, want to be kind of exalted. You know, there are ministries that do have far-reaching exposure and are very godly, and that's great. Praise the Lord. As long as it's done in God's time and in God's way, and it's not a work of men and their creativity and their plotting and their programs and their research in ministry, that you know, it's one of these, I think you would call it maybe even a Calvary distinctive right here in this verse, to just wait on the Lord and let him have his way in what he wants to do with us. And if he wants to move us at a time and in a place where suddenly we have more exposure and more reach, well, praise the Lord. Our eyes are not on that, and we don't crave that. What we crave is just obedience and being faithful to the Lord. We leave the rest to him, and if he uses us that way, praise the Lord. If he doesn't, he'll use somebody else, and we should thank the Lord for that, that people are being reached that way through that ministry. But we don't strive for exaltation. And then verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, And the wine is red, the cup representing the judgment of the Lord. The wine is representing his wrath. The wine is red. It's full strength. The idea is it's not cut. It's not diluted. It's mixed. It's fully mixed. It's, you know, it's in perfect, full-bodied state. It's heavy-hitting stuff, high-octane stuff. It is fully mixed. He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. This is a very common idiom throughout Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where the Lord says that the wicked of the earth will be forced to drink down this judgment. Take this judgment and they'll get it full strength. And this is exactly what happened in Hezekiah's time when, again, the single angel Dave went down there and took out all the frontline troops And, of course, it has two fulfillments in the future. One is um, in Revelation, where the wrath of God comes upon the earth in judgment in the time of the tribulation. But remember, when Jesus was on his last night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was about to be taken by the uh, mob armed with torches and clubs and things, And Peter got up to defend Jesus and, you know, swung his sword and took off an ear. And Jesus said, 
shall I not drink the cup that the Father has? And elsewhere he prayed, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I think he's deliberately picking up an idiom that's common through the scriptures. And the cup that he's drinking is the cup that we deserve. The wrath of God poured out for our sins, he is going to take in an undiluted fashion so that uh, our sin is paid for. And we don't have to drink this. We, We don't have to face this. We should, of course, thank the Lord forever for that. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. So Psalm 75. Let's go to Psalm 76. If Psalm 75 is before the Assyrians, Psalm 76 might be after to the chief musicians on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. And after, you know, a large demonstration of God's power in judgment and in deliverance, there would be certainly a very strong awareness of God's nearness and his grace and his glory. And that's what this psalm speaks about. He says in verse 1, In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. And you can bet that that would be the case, that the word of the Assyrian army being destroyed on the gates of Jerusalem made it through that ancient world. And the reputation of the God of Israel obviously was uh, very uh, strong in that time. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. You know, I think the idea there is that there they are, after immediately after the judgment of the army, 185,000, and 185,000 people prepared for war got to carry a lot of stuff with them. They're all suddenly dead. And again, the scriptures say that they go out there and they plunder that body. They plunder the bodies and they take so much stuff. And it could be that, that they're, you know, they're looking at all this stuff that they've got now that came in just a moment. All this opulence and this great wealth that was suddenly delivered to them. And they look at that and they go, you know, that's nothing compared to the greatness of God. You are more glorious and excellent than mountains of prey. For all that he gives us and all he does for us, that ought to, all that stuff needs to just be pale in comparison to the treasure of uh, who he is. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, a kind of poetic language about death. And none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep. So again, they're all dead. You are yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed, or you might say all the humble or the meek of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. Uh, That's a really interesting verse. 
Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. It speaks about the total, complete control and sovereignty has, God has, over the situation. So high is his power and his capability and his, his sovereignty in the situation that he can take these situations where people are uh, full of wrath and he use it for his own purposes to glorify himself. Right here at the, at the Assyrians, they came down to wipe them out, to wipe out the, uh, the nation of Judah and conquer the city of Jerusalem. And instead, it set God up for, you know, the perfect tee shot there. He wiped them all out in one night. Um, there's other places in the scripture where this is put on display. Uh, the chief of them certainly is Jesus at the cross, where the wrath of the Jewish people and the Gentiles against Jesus is being poured out on him. He's being unjustly executed in a humiliating, slow public execution. In the midst of that, the Lord is working out uh, the salvation of the world. Through the wrath of man poured out against the Son of God, God is working out something far greater than we could ever ask or, or think of or imagine. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, and with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. I like that verse a lot. I think you ought to also. And in the midst of, um, you know, these kinds of, these kinds of situations where God is, a, you know, needs to deliver, like the Psalm 75, it might be that many people in the city were like, oh God, if you get me out of this, I'll, and then they make a vow. And so after the deliverance, after the judgment, Certainly there's a great awareness of God and, and all of these reflections on his power and his sovereignty and his glory. And the, the verse here, Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He's saying, you made those vows? Great, you're going to keep them. Uh, you know, the New Testament um, actually kind of discourages us from making vows. It says there's no reason to really do that. You know, we can't really persuade God to be any more favorable towards us. He's already completely gracious towards us, so vows aren't going to work that way. Um, the New Testament says, well, you know, it's probably better just not to vow than make a vow and not keep it. And you don't really do anything, so with it, just don't make a vow. But here in this situation, they're going to, he, he's saying, okay, I heard your vows. I don't need your, you know, I don't need your cow. I don't need your extra grain and stuff, but it's good for you to keep it. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Okay, so again, Psalm 76, reflecting on the majesty of God in judgment. And then Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is about remembering and how important remembering is to us in times when we need to clear up our own thinking and trials. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph again. I cried out to God with my voice. To God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Uh, the writer's in some sort of emotional turmoil. He's dealing with, uh, we don't know what. It's not really tied to any specific circumstance that we can identify but it's enough 
that he's in a lot of discomfort and a lot of personal inner anxiety. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. You know, he's without sleep. You ever been there? I have. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. Now, that's interesting. I remembered God and was troubled. We're going to see that he is thinking about God probably, but, you know, when we go through trials again, we need to be conscious of the reality of an enemy coming and making it worse than it needs to be by bringing us interpretations of the trial that are incorrect. You know, things, hardships and things, we're not immune from hardships in the world. We all go through them. Just because we're believers doesn't mean we're going to be free of hardships. But the problem is we tend to personalize them. And when something happens to us, we like to, some people are more prone to this than others, to reflect on it and say, it's because this. And they work it out because God is this way with me. You know, that, that's probably not accurate. Hardship just comes to us, and we can go through a double layer of trial by personalizing it. And that's what it seems what he is doing here. He's thinking wrongly about his trial. There is something hard going on, but he's going to make his way out through some careful remembering of things. He's saying he's remembering God, but he's going to clear that up with some reflection on some truths of what he knows. I think we're going to see a chuckism, if you want to call it that, that we we toss around in Calvary Chapel that goes like this. Don't trade what you do know for what you don't know. And so when you get into situations you don't understand what God is doing, don't start picking up unwarranted interpretations that will move you away from what you know to be true about God and his grace and his mercy his kindness and his goodness towards us. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient time. I call to remembrance my song in the night. The idea is I remember a time when, when I was full of praise and maybe things were clear towards you and you know free of trials. I remember that time of free praise towards you even in the night. I meditate within my heart, and I think the whole thing swings around this next sentence. Man, my spirit makes diligent search. You know, I think that's an important phrase to take note of in this psalm. My spirit makes diligent search, or makes, or it ponders diligently. You know, I say this a lot up here, especially as we go through this, the psalms. We are called to manage our minds and to police what's going on inside our hearts and minds. Even in the midst of trials, hard emotional, intellectual trials, we're still called to bring ourselves to think clearly about that. And sometimes that's what we have to do to get through what the enemy wants to come along and and push into a trial, which is those bad interpretations, which will steal far more than what is needful in a trial, right? I mean, it doesn't mean we have to lose all our joy because we're going through trial. Because the enemy wants us to believe that God doesn't care, God's getting even with you. You did something. It's okay to ask that question, but once you are confident in that, then we need to get past that. Well, this guy is going to do that. He's going to get past this. My spirit makes diligent search. And it seems like verse 7, 8, and 9 are some of those questions that, well, the answers are obviously no to all of these questions. 
Yet in the midst of deep, dark trials, sometimes these questions can take on a life. And again, the enemy's there to bring these things that we would not normally ever consider. So it's great trials sometimes that force us to extend God's grace out into areas and face these questions and answer them to a level that we never had before. Will the Lord cast off forever? Well, the answer is obviously no. But this guy's in a deep enough trial that he's asking that question. And will he be favorable no more? Well, the answer again, obviously no. Has his mercy ceased forever? You know, we can pick up Bible verses in the New Testament, the promises of God that plainly contradict these things. And I think that goes back to my spirit is making diligent search. He's facing these things that the enemy is trying to do in this trial, and he's, he's realizing these are the things that are true, even if I don't know what's going on. Still, here are things that are true. Is the Lord going to cast off forever? Well, no. What does the scripture say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So deal with that. <laughs> will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? There's a whole psalm written about that, you know, uh, where it says his mercy endures forever. Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Again, all these questions have to be faced sometime in um, deep, dark trials. And his spirit making diligent search makes his way through these. And verses 10, 11, he comes out the other side able to rejoice in the Lord. I said, this is my anguish. These, these questions being, being pushed upon him. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I think this is an extension of what he just said, making a diligent search. I'm going to go back and think about what God has done. And the things that he's done in my life and done for me, they mean something. They mean something for me here and now. That's one of the great mistakes that Israel made is that when they were in the wilderness, right, and they're coming out of Egypt, they had all of those signs, all those wonders, all those great displays of God's power in the Red Sea, in the ten plagues, in the pillar of fire at night, the cloud during the day, the manna, water from the rock, all of these awesome works, and they meant something. They meant God was on their side and he loved them and would provide for them completely. But when they got to the next trial, it's like God, it's like they had forgotten everything that God had done and they had, it's like they had nothing to fall back on. And that's a great mistake they made is to learn nothing about what God had done for them. And so here, this guy going through this trial, he's remembering what God has done and it's, it means something. It's helping him extinguish those fiery darts of the enemy, if we want to put it that way. Surely I remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. For him, he could meditate on all the things in the Old Testament about all those things we just talked about that they did in the wilderness. They can talk about the kingdom and the judges and Joshua. He had a lot of things to fall back on. We have a better thing to fall back and meditate on. We could meditate on his love as it's poured out for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. That verse is is actually more literally, your way, O God, is in holiness, apartness, set apartness. 
you know, going through trials and deep trials like that, you're just not going to find any help from the world. And the Lord might set you apart in a trial and learn, and for us to learn that, that we are His and we go forward in holiness. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among your people. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. And then he talks again about some of the things he has remembered of old. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great water, and your footsteps were not known. Really poetic language. We think it's referring again to that parting of the Red Sea, attributing great demonstrations of God's power at that time. Your path is in the great waters. And yet for all of that obvious things that he's doing there, your footsteps were not known. In other words, you were there, obviously, with power, but there's no real physical footprints and things on the ground for you to see. You are there, even if we can't see you. Obviously, your power demonstrates that you are there. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. How different is this at the end, leading the people like a flock to at the beginning of this where I remembered God and was troubled. You're holding my eyelids open. The end here, you know, it's a very tranquil sense of God's personal care and his leading and his guiding, even in the midst of something he didn't understand. Again, the exercise of Psalm 77 is to remember. Remember what God has done accurately and to know it means something for right now, even when I'm in a, a big trial, and not to trade some sort of lie from the enemy that's going to contradict what I know is true about God's love and his mercy and his continual grace and kindness. Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We look to your word, Lord, and your word is enough. We love being directed by you, by your spirit, and you speaking to us. Lord, we pray that your truths would rest in our hearts, causing us, inspiring us to obedience and to holiness. Thank you, Lord. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.